Welcome to the Women Changing the World podcast, a podcast on a mission to bring you some of the most amazing women I know who are doing incredible things to generally make the world a better place. From corporate sustainability to straight up magic and everything in between, you'll meet the real life humans who are birthing the new. I'm your host, Liz Best, and I'm here to amplify the stories and voices of women who are changing the world. Welcome to a new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. I am so excited to sit down today with Laura Burks. She is the head of sustainability at Sonder. And today we talk about everything from nature-based solutions, including what they are, uh, to local climate activism and how you can get more involved in climate at the local level, um, as well as where she thinks the sustainability field is headed and what she's most optimistic about. I just know you're going to enjoy my conversation with Laura as much as I did. Oh my goodness, I am so beyond excited for today's conversation with Laura Varks. She is the head of sustainability at Sonder and an all-around sustainability badass. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Liz. I'm I'm a big fan and uh, you have so many impressive change agents. I'm I'm always inspired to listen in. Oh my gosh, thank you. Well, it's seriously a mutual admiration society over here. Um, I know we have so much to talk about today. Maybe before we get into things, would you mind briefly introducing yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. So Laura Burks, I'm a sustainability professional. I've uh, been working in the space for, let's just say, a long time now. And my roles have ranged from public and private sector, both in the U.S. and abroad. And now in our semi-post-COVID world, um, I find myself based in uh, the rural Mountain West in Montana. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, there's so, so much I'm so excited to talk to you about today. I feel like in your career, you've gotten to touch on so many different, super interesting pieces of the overall sustainability ecosystem. And I'm so excited to talk more about all of them. I'm also curious, you probably know this question is coming but my favorite first question to ask on the podcast is, because this is the Women Changing the World podcast, if you could change one thing about the world, what's the one thing that you would most want to change? I love the question. And um, on the heels of, of Climate Week in New York, I think the, the one thing that uh, I really take away from that is changing a shift in the political will to address climate change. And that was so evident and palpable um, in part because there was so much discussion um, and we're seeing so much more about all of the solutions that exist. And it just makes me realize how much we could unlock if we had political will, not only in the US, but many other places, but crucially here. And um, it's, it's something I certainly observe in in the, in the West as well, um, we were facing a lot of political headwinds, but at a national level, 
if we could orient towards solving these problems um, from, a, from a political perspective, I think it would really um, unlock so many of the solutions that exist. So that would be the one, the one thing I, could, I would do if I could wave a magic wand. Oh my goodness. Yes. It's so timely and so important. And it's something that I'm so, I like, I hate to, I hate to put like bring finger crossing into this. And I'm like so crossing my fingers that politically we can get it together because it's so, so, so important. Exactly. Well, let's, let's hope fingers crossed everyone register and, and vote and take someone with you. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, let's see. I mean, again, there's a ton I want to talk to you about. I think, you know, one of the many, many reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, besides just how awesome and interesting you are, is that I know you've had, again, just such an interesting journey to get to where you are today. And I do think it's really expansive, um, both for me, selfishly, and for listeners uh, of this podcast to hear like how people came to be in, in these roles and like living these lives that they're currently living and like what the path looked like, because I think so often when we're younger, we're like taught to believe that it's like a straight line. And the reality is it's like almost anything but in so many cases. Um, so I'd love if you would be willing to indulge us to hear a little bit about how you came to be where you are today. And really the invitation always is to take up space and tell your story. Oh, absolutely. Well, well, thank you for that. And, and, and you are, are correct that it's anything but linear. Uh, I think like so many sustainability professionals, it's, it's a long and windy road. Um, and maybe before I jump into a brief chronology, I'll start with the motivation that really drew me to the field, which has been kind of a lifelong love of, of nature and wildlife. And it's very much thanks to my parents, my grandparents that exposed me to the natural natural world throughout my childhood, um, that uh, that I have that awareness and and I'm more and more aware of of um, what a privilege that was and um, how fortunate I was to to grow up in a rural setting in the Midwest and have parents that exposed me to the great outdoors. Um, and then what really catalyzed that, and this, this definitely comes up more and more now that I live back in Montana, is that um, this growing interest was really fostered by my parents. And um, I, I, I was keen to get into mountaineering and learn how to climb when I was a junior in high school. And uh, this was particularly obscure for a kid growing up in uh, the, the floodplains of the Missouri River, but nevertheless, <laughs> they, uh, they indulged the interest and my dad and I learned to climb together, um, which ultimately accumulated in a trip to the Alaska Range and a month um, climbing Denali together. And at that point, you know, climate change was nothing that was uh, really familiar or um, even on my radar at, at the age of 18. But now looking back, experiencing glaciers, being in remote high alpine settings, uh, you know, experiencing the elements of a wild landscape really uh, allowed me to, to draw upon why it is so critical for people to understand our reliance on the natural world and to adopt behaviors that allow our planet to flourish and remain habitable. So, um, so getting back to your question, um, that's the motivation. But what happened between the summit of Denali in 1997 and and where I am now is 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 certainly um, 
a zigzag. I ended up going to the University of, of Montana in Missoula for uh, undergraduate school, which uh, admittedly was was motivated by my, my, my love of the mountains. And, and that was kind of the beginning of my story with Montana. Uh, in addition to the fact that my my grandmother was was raised here, and um, after graduating, I ended up working for our senior senator from Montana, Senator uh, Max Baucus, who was the senior Democrat at the time. And so that was really my my first experience with politics, and I learned from my time on Capitol Hill what a uh, how foundational it is to understand policy. Uh, the role of business and the multitude of ways that it fits into our daily lives. And, um, you know, we see that more and more uh, as we look at the world around us. So uh, that was working on the, the finance committee. And after that, I, I went and worked for Senator Daschle, who at the time was the majority leader. And I was on his leadership staff covering his trade policy issues for the finance committee. And um, so the the, the interest really shifted to international trade policy. Uh, at that point, I moved overseas and was fortunate to get grant funding from Fulbright and spent a year and a half in Morocco looking at the implementation of the U.S.-Morocco Free Trade Agreement and its impacts on an emerging market. And interestingly, it was actually through trade that I began to um, shift into uh, sustainability after, under, after grad school at the Monterey Institute, um, I moved to Geneva to do my thesis work with the World Trade Organization, and it was really there through the lens of trade policy that I began to see the incorporation of environmental considerations into trade texts. And a bit of a light bulb went off, which is that, wow, these things are really problems we need to be working actively, and what are all of the, the systems levers that we pull? And it's ironic to think of this now because I can't, it's hard to, to imagine a time when I wasn't thinking about climate change, but you know that actually, I guess, dates me and, um, <laughs> and puts, puts in context how many more solutions and how much more our academic um, setting has oriented towards solving these problems, which is, which is great. And at that point, I, I stayed in Geneva, moved to the World Economic Forum, initially more with a, a U.S. policy role, but that evolved into thinking about the role of business in multi-stakeholder conversations, the G20, the COP conversations, new and UPCC. Um, I moved from there to the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, working on a lot of cross-sectoral initiatives between business and, again, the, the public sector, thinking more about how, how business can be, um, you know, a, a partner in driving that positive change. At that point, moved back to the U.S., which was um, about 10 years overseas, and um, took my first in-house role with Hewlett Packard Enterprise as their CSO after HP um, and HPE split. And then I uh, did some consulting for a few years, worked with uh, a, a small startup, and then I joined Sonder nearly three years ago, uh, pre-IPO, to, uh, to stand up their sustainability function. So I'll, I'll stop with that. That was a long explanation. Oh, my goodness. No, I mean, it was it was like so elegantly brief for like so much interesting content. And again, there's like so many pieces of that that I would love to to ask more about um, because again, I, I just think your path in this space has been so interesting and you've touched on 
so many different like types of roles in this space and gotten to wear so many different hats. It's super interesting. Um, and I'd love to hear, I know that you're working currently at a newly public company. Um, what is it like to lead sustainability partnerships and social impact with a small team at a newly public company? Yeah, it's a great question. So I joined Sonder, which for those that aren't familiar, is a, a tech-enabled hospitality company about three years ago. Um, and as I alluded to, it's my first in-house role with such an early stage pre-IPO business. And you know, I, the opportunity I really see um, in this context is for new companies to establish this function at an early stage and to make responsible business practices part of the DNA of the company. Not an afterthought, but to really incorporate sustainability as, an, as a strategy uh, and an ingrained value proposition of the business. And I just know that so many of the issues that I worked on with large multinational companies were effectively adapting policies to be compliant with growing employee, investor, and consumer expectations. And now we have the benefit of understanding the direction that um, the world needs to go, that um, the world is expecting business to, to, to lead, frankly. And um, so I think the, the benefit of knowing that now is, is a, a real invitation for founders and early stage companies to, to think holistically about how they integrate this early on in, in the journey of the business. Totally. I think it's it's so interesting because having started my sustainability career working at, you know, a massive corporation, um, I feel like in a lot of ways, this idea of like a blank canvas <laughs> sounds like the dream to a lot of people. Um, and so totally think it's such an interesting perspective to have gotten to to start before the company's even public and thinking about what this means. Yeah, and, and I hope that, I mean, in many ways, like the end goal, right, is to make our jobs obsolete. And, um, you know, my my hope in many ways is that, that these roles don't need to exist in the future because every job becomes a climate job and businesses understand how to um, integrate uh, all of these considerations across appropriate business functions. And it's just part of the way that we um, operate in a, um, in a future world, which is, you know, in a climate positive way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I cannot wait <laughs> for that. World. <laughs> I think we still have a little bit of time, unfortunately, but that's the goal. <laughs> totally. And I mean, who knows? I, I, I believe that we will see that in our lifetimes. I mean, I think it's possible. I think we need it. It is. Have you downloaded our 2022 Reflection Guide yet? It's our totally free annual workbook to help you look back on the past year, celebrate the magic of 2022, and look ahead to what you're calling in next. Visit www.elizabethbest.com, that's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-B-E-S-T.com, slash reflection guide to get the latest. We'll also include a link in the show notes for you to meet us there. Thank you. 
Well, I know that in addition to your so-called day job, um, there's a lot of other really interesting stuff on your plate these days. Um, do you mind filling us in on like some of the other stuff on your plate and what your day-to-day currently looks like? Sure. Um, so, you know, there's a lot. It's, it's interesting um, being part of um, a small rural community and, um, for additional context, I live in an area called uh, Paradise Valley, which is north of Yellowstone National Park, um, in an area called the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. And um, it's the last eco- intact ecosystem outside of the Serengeti. And um, what that means is that a lot of the volunteer activities and a lot of the community activities that um, we're engaged in, uh, you know, very much pertain to conservation and to um, to wildlife and so much of, of the natural world. And so in, in my spare time, um, certainly try to do all I can to actually enjoy and partake in um, this incredible landscape. And then, to, you know, to, to think about the ways that um, we can give back and and think about how these natural assets are preserved in perpetuity. Well, and I know that you've shared with me previously that living where you do in rural Montana brings new relevance to your climate work. Can you tell us a little bit more about climate where you are and how kind of being on the front lines in this way has shifted your own perspective on climate work? Sure. And I think now most of us in, in some way increasingly have a, a tangible example of climate change where we live. Um, but for some reason being here now, it's, um, it is more, so much more palpable than I remember it feeling in the past in other places where I lived. And um, I think part of the, uh, the, the, the joy and the sorrow of being connected to a landscape is that you also see the stresses that, um, that it experiences from increasing weather and climactic extremes. So just here in the last couple of years, um, we've had everything from extreme drought and wildfire to this year, um, massive flooding. And I know this is sadly not a um, original um, story and that we we see this uh, globally now, but it's certainly been palpable here. And there are other ongoing examples like um, the fact that warming temperatures are causing changes in the habitats for our wildlife, which um, impacts food sourcing, which is leading to more um, predator-human conflict. So we um, enjoy the benefit of having um, apex predators living in in the area, wolves, grizzly bears, and um, that, uh, as their food sources change, that increases this, this conflict. And um, so some other more tangential but very real impacts of climate change from a tourism perspective as our winters become less cold. Uh, they're still pretty cold, but not as cold as they used to be. Oftentimes there are parasites that are not killed that had been in the past. And in previous years, this has resulted in fish dying, which you know, economically speaking results in loss of tourism. And we, we now see that there are rivers um, at a certain point that will close for parts of the day because the waters have warmed so much that the fish are stressed if there are boats um, or people fishing. So some very real life examples, you know, to say nothing of 
air um, quality from wildfires and, um, you know, and, and the very practical impacts on um, one component of our local economy, which is farming and ranching, which is obviously he heavily dependent on, on water um, and, and rainfall. So it's a, it's a very real issue. And um, I know many of us feel this in different ways, but it's, it's certainly um, brought a new resonance to, um, to my work living here. Oh my goodness. I mean, I can only imagine, I think as you articulated, so many of us are maybe not necessarily day-to-day -day living with the impacts of climate change, um, but are, you know, month-to-month -month or year-to-year, season-to-season, witnessing, like, in a very visceral way, the impact of climate change in a way that I know for people who've been working in this space for a long time, it's like, we saw this coming, but I don't know that we necessarily thought it would be here so soon. Yeah. And it's right outside the door. Um, there's, there's no refuting it now, um, which uh, only increases the urgency of action, which is, which is deeply needed. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, and on that note, um, I know that a lot of the people who are in my world and who listen to this podcast are working on climate at some level, often at the global level or the international level, um, but may not necessarily know how to translate that into more local activism. Um, and I know that you're someone who has been involved at the local level on climate issues um, for a while. And I'm curious if you have any ideas or wisdom for people, I guess, who either want to get involved in climate action at their own community level or potentially people who are listening who, for example, would love to be involved in local climate action in the greater Yellowstone region or in other ecosystems that they care about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's been a, a really good learning opportunity for me coming back to Montana and living here because previously I was very engaged and aware of the uh, international global policy frameworks, um, federal laws, and had been engaged for many years in those processes, um, very much overlooking the, the local political outlets. And it was only in moving back to um, a community like this that I, I began to really understand why this was so fundamental and so important. Um, I, think more, I think more and more of us are aware of, of, of those realities now, but um, I see how important um, city and county planning boards are for local regulations. Um, uh, you, know, you see how important local nonprofits are that truly understand the nuances of um, uh, the environmental issues that a community faces, which are very often are quite nuanced. Um, and, and having a, a non, engaging with nonprofits that, that can really think about that in a way that is inclusive um, and, and thoughtful is, 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 is pretty important as well. And, um, and then getting to know your, your elected officials and what they stand for and what their positions are on energy at a local level. I think that's probably a, a pretty fundamental one at this point. We have rural electric co-ops in much of the West. 
um, what are those solutions for decarbonization um, on up to, to, to local utilities. And so what I would say to those that are interesting interested in getting involved at a, a local community level is it's absolutely important. Um, I think we have to to do this from the bottom up now. It's uh, it's not just from the top down. And we we crucially need more and more people to be advocating on behalf of um, of these issues, uh, at, uh, yeah, down down to the city mayor, uh, down to the city um, city council's office. I don't think that there's a role that's maybe too small anymore to not take these things into account. Yeah, I mean that makes so much sense, and I mean I think going back to what you had shared earlier too, like voting <laughs> is also exactly. so important, and and voting for these elected officials who are making decisions about climate. Absolutely. I, I think that that can't be overlooked and, and probably can't be stated enough, which is, um, yeah, to really challenge our elected leaders to have informed positions um, on what the, the future <laughs> looks like and, and how we planned to, to live there sustainably and, um, you know, putting in, in office those that have the courage to say that, um, you know, what's the expression uh if things are gonna stay the same a lot will have to change and mm. um i think we have to really rethink um so much of what we depend on and so many of our habits and that's really uncomfortable and pretty unpopular if you're a politician that would rather um you know keep the status quo but but we definitely need those leaders to be thinking about how we uh, shift um, jobs to, in a way that that supports this transition and um, yeah and, and thinks about the next generation and, and those that will follow. Yeah, that makes so much sense. What I'm curious, given I mean I know you have such interesting background in policy and political work. Are there any like specific mechanisms for engaging directly with elected officials that you would say you've observed are most and or least effective or impactful? You know, at a local level, I think it's really important to meet your officials. And um, that's definitely something that's much more accessible, I, I believe, in that context than, than it probably is at a federal, certainly at an international context. So I would encourage people to figure out who their, their representatives are, both in the House and the Senate, and to meet with them and to um, really understand their policies and, and go into a conversation with some questions about their positions and um, and then, you know, hopefully how that individual can help them um, if, if they are, in fact, trying to either learn about this as a platform um, or advance certain initiatives. But I would really encourage people to actually go out and, and meet those individuals and, um, and get to know them and, and let them know that these are important um, to their electorate. Mm, I love that there's no substitute for face-to-face interaction and or I imagine Zoom face interaction. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't always work. I, I I think more often than not, at least in my case, um, I have to say I'm not I'm not sure that it's uh, always changed minds, but I guess that's the other thing that's important is I, to speak up anyway um, and mm. 
depending on where some of these listeners are, the the political winds may be more favorable than others. But I still think it's important that um, that our elected officials know that that there is a, con- a, a contingency and a growing contingency that um, cares about climate action. Definitely. And I think there's no substitute for conveying that message quite like showing up. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I'd love to change topics a little bit because something else I know you're super passionate about that I find really interesting and exciting as we think about how our field is evolving is nature-based solutions. Um, So first of all, for anyone who's listening who has maybe never heard of the idea of nature-based solutions, what are they? In simplest terms, nature-based solutions involve working with nature to address the climate crisis and, by extension, improving human well-being. So it's been really reassuring to see that, um, finally, nature and specifically biodiversity are being included as a robust means of addressing climate change. And for decades, understandably, the focus has been on fossil fuels and energy decarbonization, which is obviously deeply needed. But what we also need to consider as conservation and regenerative ecosystems that foster biodiversity. So some specific examples of nature-based solutions would be thinking about ways to protect riparian areas to ensure clean water or um, uh fostering abundant landscapes that support native insects and pollinators and wildlife. What does it look like to conserve nature sinks? So forests or above ground biomass sources, soils, grasslands, oceans, and then where possible adopting regenerative approaches to bring back what has been lost. So really thinking about, um, you know, how we think about the world around us as um, a lifeline, which it is, but I, I, I don't know that we always consider how um, fundamental all of these components of, of a biosphere, of an ecosystem are to our long-term well-being um, on the planet. And I find it so inspiring because you know, m- maybe some of the sustainability professionals listening can relate to this, but so much of our work, I think, is dealing with regulations and spreadsheets and the infamous business case and the invisible gases in the atmosphere and nature-based solutions, you know, particularly living where I live now, feel very tangible um, and, and concrete in ways that, that our space isn't always as uh, relatable. So that's, that's something that I find really inspiring. And there's so many businesses that are now um, thinking about this, how this can be part of their um, climate action strategy, and then equally um, very entrepreneurial companies that are trying to, um, you know, figure out how we value this more systemically in in society. And so I'm I'm encouraged by this this development. Mm. Yes, well, and I'm curious, would you be willing to go like a little bit deeper on what what that could look like? I guess potentially, let's say for a business to really make that part of their strategy, like what would mm-hmm. what would that tangibly look like for people? I think we're we're seeing it most tangibly probably through um, offset considerations. So let's say a company that set a twenty thirty 
climate target and knows that they will only be able to reach um, you know, a substantive percentage of that climate target um, and you know, would like to figure out how they reach that remaining percentage by investing in something, um, uh, something like an offset. There are more and more nature-based solutions and carbon offsets that factor in all of the credible indicators of um, these models and begin to actually support um, the systems that ensure uh, you know, all, all of the attributes I mentioned earlier, we're seeing um, uh, recently biodiversity credits come onto the scene. So how do we think about preserving these last um, intact uh, biospheres that we have? And it's sad that we have to think about an economic model for this valuation. Um, I wish that the intrinsic value of that was enough, but um, increasingly, I don't think it is. And so you know, those are a couple of tangible ways that, that I'm seeing businesses incorporate this through through offsets. And my sense is that this is only going to grow exponentially, both in terms of the, the creativity and in the ways that the businesses are thinking about that, but perhaps even um, financial tools that allow individuals to invest in this preservation in a, in a different way that's not purely philanthropic, but hopefully in the long run has has some returns against it as well. Definitely. I think it's it's really interesting to see the ways that some of these new models are being, you know, in many cases created in order to, like, I agree with you. It's sad that it has to, like, it's like taking an economic model to motivate some of this conservation, but also at the end of the day, it's so important that it's kind of like, well, if that's how we have to get there, um, maybe that's how we have to get there. I'm curious for someone who's listening, who's like, oh, actually, I was just looking at or thinking about potentially purchasing some carbon offsets, um, but maybe I should be looking into this instead. Like, what would you say, um, how would you suggest someone like potentially balance thinking about different pieces? Yeah, I think a lot of the carbon offset platforms are actually including this. Um, I don't know that they are distinguishing at a high level the difference between just carbon and nature-based, but my sense is that most offset platforms are actually beginning to offer a nature-based solution. How much of that is um, directed at the individual is a little bit less obvious. I know that for businesses, um, there are uh, platforms like Patch, for example, that are beginning to think about these nature-based solutions in the context of offsets. And, um, you know, and there are other platforms as well that are, are, are just thinking much more holistically about this. And, and very often, uh, these, these areas which have rich biodiversity also have um, high carbon contents. And so there's, there's very often an overlap there. I, I don't I think in the long run, those things will probably need to be decoupled to have the, the conservation impact that that's needed globally. Um, but I think uh, we're, we're beginning to see these two things become more and more integrated all the time. Mm, that's so interesting. So it's not necessarily even an either or in many cases, it's, you know, organizations are evaluating what uh, like what form of offsets or credits will help them achieve their goals. It could be a carbon offset that is in fact nature-based. Exactly. And um, uh, we're seeing things like carbon soil sequestration. That's um, been an issue that I've worked on locally, which is thinking about how one fosters 
regenerative agriculture practices that increase the uh, carbon soil content um, through uh, rotational grazing and then what is the marketplace for for that land practice that increases the the carbon soil and there are many other examples that you know again pertain to grasslands and oceans and, and soils and forests but um, you know it's it, it's hopefully becoming more and more commonplace and um, and more and more accessible yeah definitely um, well, I'm curious. I, I feel like you're someone who naturally is kind of has your finger on the pulse of some of the coolest, newest things that are happening in the sustainability space. And so I'm curious, like what, um, I guess, potentially in addition to nature-based solutions are some of the more interesting things that you've been observing as of late? What's so inspiring is to see how many professionals from very different fields are beginning to align against solving the climate crisis, right? And even a few years ago, this was not the case, but now the um, you know, the incorporation of CTOs and developers and engineers and financiers and so many other fields and now have a home in this world that didn't exist so many years ago. And it's um, so fundamental to reaching the scale of change that's needed because just the sustainability wonks left to themselves, I, I don't think are, are sufficient. <laughs> um, we, we need the skills of, of so many others. And, um, and I'm seeing that in it's such a um, incredible, incredible pace. And, and I'm just delighted that uh, that there are more and more people that can bring their diverse sets of skills to thinking about this problem. Yes, it's definitely, I feel like so often, I don't know, I, I feel like this is much less the case now, but so often, I, you know, you, I would hear from and meet people, and this was totally me too, uh, who felt like the way to work on sustainability was to have like sustainability in your job title. Um, yeah, there's so many potentially arguably far more impactful ways to work on sustainability where it has nothing to do with your job title. Exactly. And, and now many of the, you know, the climate tech companies we're seeing start are, you know, by founders that don't have climate backgrounds, but they have backgrounds in, you know, the, the currency of the current world and are, um, solving for that problem with their skill set and like what a what a wonderful evolution. So uh, I, I think that's a, a great reason for hope and um, as it relates to interesting de developments in the field, I just I think it's it's cross cutting and um, is is generating so many new businesses and so many nuanced ways of thinking about these complex problems that um, we're, we're bound to make progress. Mm, yes, <laughs> I believe that. And I appreciate that perspective. Um, well, I'm, I'm so curious for anyone listening who's like, oh my gosh, Laura's so cool. How can I be her when I grow up? Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious, like what, um, what would you say are like some of your maybe like most often given pieces of career advice for people who are thinking about navigating careers in this space? Yeah, I, I typically would say to cast a wide net and um, 
not necessarily be too precious about the the journey that one may have preordained for themselves to get there. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, be open to the opportunities that may come your way and at each juncture sort of take the best next step and see where it leads. At least in my case, um, you know, in uh, earlier in life, I, I'm pretty sure I thought I knew how all of this would unfold and it was anything but that. <laughs> Let me assure you. And um, so it's easy to say in hindsight, you know, just sort of follow your nose as you go and um, piece it together. And, and it, at each at each juncture, like take the next best option and it will all work out, which which I do think is the case. And now this this field in particular is so rich um, and so in need of, of young talent that uh, I, I think there are many more homes for that passion than there ever have been in the past. So um, I would just encourage, uh, you know, all either all new professionals coming into the workspace or those that are shifting a career um, to be more involved in climate action that I, you know, I think there's a home, just, uh, just be open to where it is and, um, and follow that. And, and I'm, and I'm sure uh, it will only evolve from there. Mm. Yes, I feel like it, it often seems to all make sense in hindsight. And <laughs> I feel like I'm like laughing, thinking of my 23-year-old self, hearing that advice and being so impatient and wanting like a 10-year roadmap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they're not bad, but it's, you know, sometimes we have to uh, go 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 off the map a little bit to to find our way and um yeah I would I would just say that that's very often part of the journey and not to be too afraid of deviating yes well yeah I I couldn't agree more it's like the roadmap's not bad but it's often cute <laughs> <laughs> yeah there are more guidelines than than specific directions Definitely. Well, I guess a little bit staying in the advice lane, but uh, thinking a little bit more like holistically about like life. Um, what advice, if any, do you wish you could give to your younger self? And you can totally pick an age for this advice or just give some generic younger self advice. I think I would, I would probably whisper to my, uh, to myself in high school to, to trust the, the gravitational pull of the mountains and go west, which I ultimately did do. Um, but I don't think I fully understood how important that would ultimately be for me. Um, you know, as I alluded to earlier, this has really been like pretty foundational and, um, my relationship and exposure to nature, which is fundamental to the work that I do now. And so much of that was, um, was based in um, being in the mountains being in the West. And I'm so grateful for that. And, and at the time I, I probably thought it was, uh, you know, a, a curiosity and, and just a, maybe a passing interest, but it has become completely fundamental to, to, to so much of what, um, what I do and the mountains, you know, became and still are uh, my respite. And I think for all sustainability professionals, you have to have that. You have to have some place you can go to renew your energy and um, be connected to the reason why we do this work. Um, so I, I, I would I would go back and say, yeah, trust that instinct. It, it, it'll serve you well. <laughs> 
Mm, that's so deep. And I mean, I'm definitely more oceans than mountains, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like, <laughs> I mean, why not both? But exactly. I do feel like there's so many, there are so many women who've been on the podcast and people in this field in general who I know who, yeah, there, it's interesting. Like there was that like inkling, there was something even as early as high school that like at the time, maybe didn't stand out as the nudge, but looking back, it's like, oh yeah, that's been there for a long time. And I love that you've had that gravitational pull toward the mountains in the West for so long. Yeah, no, I, um, I feel fortunate to, to have that, that grounding. Well, I'm curious. I, it, I know you've listened to the podcast, so you probably know this question is coming, but, um, I'm obsessed with an inspirational post-it note, by which I mean I'm obsessed with many inspirational post-it notes. Um, <laughs> one day, I want to create a deck of all the inspirational post-it notes that the guests on this podcast have on their desks. And so I'm curious <laughs> if you got to have your own personal post-it, um, what's your current favorite post-it size piece of inspiration? Yeah, so I, I I look forward to to a copy of the book when you when you compile it. That would that would definitely be a, a wonderful source of inspiration. So one that um, that that I think may apply to to a lot of us in this space is uh, a reference. Um, if the goals are within our lifetime, they probably aren't big enough. And um, so I I do think about that a lot because it, the the work we do probably isn't, we, we may not see the impacts of all of that, but the groundwork we put in place now is, um, is, is crucial. Um, and so I think it's, it's sometimes just helpful to, to remember that it, it's still worthwhile, even if um, we may not see the, uh, the end result. Um, and if, if future generations benefit from that work, then, then that's laudable as well. It reminds me of like, when I think about like, uh, what a North star could be as kind of like a guidepost. It's like, it should be something so big that you can't possibly do it by yourself in this lifetime. And I think that's such a great reminder <laughs> about goals too, especially as it pertains to this space. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's another one that, that I come back to occasionally, uh, which is a, an African proverb until the lion learns to write every story will glorify the hunter and you know, I think about that in the in the context of the voices that that aren't heard, um, in you know, particularly in this, particularly those that are impacted the most by the outcomes of climate change, and um, you know, what are the things that that those of us can do to to hopefully incorporate more of that um, into the ways that we solve these issues. So beautifully said. Uh, I'm all about ending on a positive note. I know, I know talking about climate, it can be hard depending on the day, but what's giving you hope and making you optimistic these days? There's so much engagement, I think, by the next generation, um, so much awareness of uh, the enormity of, of the challenge that we have to solve for, but equally so much intensity around what those solutions look like that I'm I am optimistic that um, once we get more leaders in power from this next generation, that you know, will to come full circle to the solution that I would um, would hope for if I could make, wave my magic wand, it would be the the political circumstance. And so I, 
I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, more and more leaders from this next generation um, being in um, uh, being in power and and beginning to to really create this system change and um, it's palpable. I think it's happening and um, so all that we can do to to foster their um, abilities to to have those roles, I I think um, is worthwhile. But I'm I'm optimistic about the change that they'll create once once they're finally in charge. Mm. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's like, how can, <laughs> how can we get future generations like in power as fast as possible? <laughs> yeah, it's time to pass the baton. Uh, yes, preach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, for people who are listening and who love you as much as I do and want to find Aww. and follow and keep up with you, where's the best place for them to do that? I would say LinkedIn. That's probably, I'm not terribly active on social media, but LinkedIn is, um, is probably the the best place to find me. Amazing. Well, we'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes for anyone who wants to keep up with everything that you're thinking and sharing. No, thank you. And thank you so much for, uh, for having me. That's, um, it's, it's really a pleasure and, um, and thank you for the work that you're doing and, um, and highlighting so many voices. Oh my goodness. It's, it's absolutely my pleasure. So appreciate you coming on the podcast. It was so fun to talk about everything from nature-based solutions to getting future generations in power and so, so, so much more. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Please rate and review the Women Changing the World podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe for future episodes. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is liz.best, that's L-A-S dot B-E-S-T, or you can find me on LinkedIn by searching my name, Liz Best. Join my mail list by visiting elizabethbest.com slash monthly meditation, and you'll receive all the latest updates on events, retreats, and opportunities to work with me, plus a monthly love note from my heart to your inbox. I am so excited to keep in touch, and I'll see you in the next episode.